0: You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council
1: with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the Train Track Enclosed Nerve Center. That's the headquarters of the Office of Cable TV, Film, Music, and Entertainment. It's also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television, so it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of D.C. If you don't follow us already, you've missed the boat. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We wanna make it easy for average residents to understand what the council does. We're demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the DC council's just like your workplace, except with the dais. On the show, we'll try to keep things light, offbeat, informal, and interesting. You'll learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. Listeners, we're working our way through recording four rounds of interviews with council members. They're available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Those focus mainly on getting to know the council members' backgrounds, successes, struggles, and the people who shape and surround them. In the fourth round, we're broadening things out, tackling issues that interest the council members and me. So now, without any further ado, let me introduce our guest today, Ward 7 Councilmember Vince Gray.
0: Thank you very much, Josh. I, Josh, I am delighted to be here. I appreciate having been a guest uh, previously. I appreciate the way you uh, handle uh, the interviews, and um, it's an opportunity to talk about those things that are important to council members. And, and in this instance, I think something is very you know, hugely germane to uh, what we're trying to do on health care every day
1: absolutely so like i said this uh you know the first few rounds uh we were kind of having questions on on certain themes uh that i was bringing to the table but now uh in this fourth round i think from here on in we are gonna uh, let you all um pick a topic uh either a topic that's near and dear to your heart um that's one of your top couple topics or, or maybe a topic that you have trouble getting picked up in uh in the media um and today we're doing uh the topic that is probably closest to your heart. Um, and uh, and that is building a comprehensive health care system in Absolutely. the District of Columbia. Absolutely. And uh, we so desperately
0: need one. You know, one uh, need only look at wards 7 and 8 to see how desperate the needs are. You know, one of the things that the city should feel proud of, frankly, is when you go further west uh, in the District of Columbia, you go to areas like, you know, Ward 2 and Ward 3, you see some of the finest health care services, not only in the uh, District of Columbia, in the region, but, frankly, in the nation. But it's just a desperate situation when you get to uh, areas of Ward 7 and 8, where we have 150,000 people uh, who reside uh, every day but yet don't have a real health care system upon which they can uh, depend. Uh, we have a hospital, uh, the United Medical Center, which is really teetering at the brink. Uh, of collapse because of its uh, the financial situation um, and we're working hard to try to build a new hospital uh, on the east side uh, of the District of Columbia that will be there to be able to serve uh, Woods 7 uh, and 8 in a way like it hasn't been served uh, before in a way that hasn't been served for many, many years uh, to be honest with you, Josh.
1: Now, and we clearly are going to talk at length about the hospital but talk to me Absent a hospital, about what the rest of, to the extent there is one, the rest of the healthcare network in Wards 7 and 8 look like?
0: Well, it's a great question. Uh, we don't have much of a healthcare network. We have some clinics uh, that are located, operated by Community of Hope, uh, clinics operated by uh, Unity, and um, Howard University has brought some services over to some uh, on Benning Road. Um, But it would be really hard to represent that at this stage as a real network uh, of services. You know, in so many areas of the District of Columbia and so many areas of the region uh, have uh, urgent care centers. Uh, We have no urgent care center in either eight uh, or seven, uh, which, again, for 150,000 people is absolutely unconscionable. So we've got a long ways to go, but I think we have a pathway for getting there. We know what we need to do. And uh, one of the things, and you've touched on it already, and that is in building a new hospital, we have uh, won the uh, budget that's been established, and we got the money for that, $326 million at this stage, to build a new hospital. We've got the site selected uh, as uh, the grounds of uh, St. Elizabeth's. And uh, through working with the administration, with the uh, Bowser administration, we've been able to establish um, a commitment on the part of George Washington University uh, to be able to operate uh, the hospital, we're still trying to work through getting the uh, agreement uh, delivered to the council, uh, and hopefully, it will uh, be able to go through the council um, relatively uh, expeditiously uh, once that's done. But I think if we get that done, I won't say if, when we get that done, uh, we will then have established the foundation, I think, for a real healthcare system. To serve all of these people who reside uh, across the uh, other side of the uh, river, um, when you look at uh, when you look at health care, um, it is arguably one of the most critical needs uh, that exists not only in the District of Columbia, but frankly anywhere uh, in the nation. Um, you know, so many people have health care insurance now available available to them. Uh, we are one of the uh, most um, well-healed in terms of having health care insurance available to people. We have uh, 96% uh, of our children who are covered by insurance. 97% of the people uh, in total, including all the adults, are covered by health care insurance. The problem for people who uh, live on the uh, east side of the District of Columbia is that for many of them, they have no place to use that insurance. They just don't have uh, access uh, to services that are desperately needed. And we actually had the jump on Obamacare, didn't we? We did. We certainly did. we, we had made some progress in terms of having health care insurance um, but when Obamacare was approved it allowed us then to move a lot of the people who were in our uh, health care alliance, uh, many of whom uh, were uh, you know, undocumented uh, residents uh, living in the District of Columbia uh, many of whom were people who had been paid for completely out of district dollars they were moved from the alliance over to Medicaid, uh, which meant that for every dollar spent then on health care insurance, um, the, the uh, half of the, uh, 70% of that was then reimbursed by the federal government. So we went from spending 100 cents on a district dollar to spending uh, only 30 cents on a district dollar, which was a great financial uh, gain for the District of Columbia, but ostensibly should have been a great gain for health care services as well. It was in
1: some areas of the city, but certainly not in areas uh, in words 7 and 8. Now, and I promise I'm going to come back to the hospital, Mm -hmm. but the clinics that you mentioned that are currently existing in 7 and 8, who are the current clients of those clinics and what are the services they would expect to receive in those clinics?
0: Well, the clients, the patients of those services are people who principally live uh, in wards uh, 7 and 8, among the 150,000 that I talked about. um, They are people who um, have... Uh, Medicaid, they have Medicare, and some of them have a commercial insurance also, you know, like uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield and Aetna and others like that. Uh, The overwhelming majority, however, are people who have Medicaid or Medicare, um, which is always a challenge too in terms of being able to make ends uh, meet. Um, The services that are provided um, are uh, typically uh, primary care uh, services. What we don't have, Josh, which is really, again, unconscionable, and that is we have no uh, obstetrical services uh, in either Ward 7 or Ward 8 uh, at this point. Um, The obstetrical services that formerly were provided at the United Medical Center were terminated. Uh, They were suspended by the uh, health department, which is the regulator, um, back in uh, 2017. And um, then uh, Providence Hospital, which is now closed, uh, when they started to wind down their services uh, in July of 2018, um, they uh, ceased to provide obstetrical services as well. So, a mother right now cannot, well, an expectant mother, uh, cannot uh, cannot have uh, a baby in a hospital um, east or uh, east of uh, North Capitol Street uh, at this point. Unless they keep going east and cross. Exactly. Into Pichu yeah County. They can't, yeah, that's right. And Prince George's County is right. But in terms of having those having a baby in the District of Columbia, there is no place to east of North Capitol, Capitol Street uh, or South Capitol Street for them to be able to uh, have that baby.
1: Now, I mean, I know we are obviously not encouraging folks to have a hospital be their first point of uh, contact with a medical system. correct. So what um, what are we doing to to uh, to encourage to to create a better system of first point of contact medical service for folks in Ward Seven and Eight, other than hospital? Well, lots of people who live in Ward Seven and Ward Eight are part of the uh, Medicaid
0: managed care uh, program, which means that they have a primary physician who is assigned uh, to them. And the role of that uh, physician is to be able to help manage, from a preventive perspective especially, to help manage the services that a person uh, who lives in Word 7 and 8 um, have uh, a need for. And um, that presumably will result in being able, people being able to get health care services earlier than they might otherwise uh, do. We've also established a, a relationship, a partnership with uh, Sibley Hospital uh, which is, a lot of people don't realize it, but it's actually owned and operated by Johns Hopkins, one of the finest uh, health care providers um, in the world. They now um, have brought, uh, they're bringing um, oncology services, uh, cancer services that, uh, you know, for, um, you know, women who may have uh, breast cancer, for example, or men who may have uh, prostate cancer, uh, or being able to provide preventive services to them to be able to intervene in a way that those cancers don't uh, you know, emerge in the way they might otherwise uh, do. And that's brand new. That's Didn't brand I see new. I that in the news? That's that's very brand, new. Yes, brand new. Uh, we, the agreement was just signed uh, about a week and a half ago um, with uh, Sibley Johns Hopkins uh, for them to be able to provide those services at uh, Unity Health in Parkside. Um, and we hope to be able to get more people to come in uh, to uh, those services at Unity and obviously to be able to get the diagnostic services that they may need uh, as a part of their uh, cancer prevention uh, programs as well. The District of Columbia uh, in Ward 7 and 8 have um, some of the highest incidence of uh, cancer services anywhere in the region, and certainly in the District of Columbia. And it's uh, certainly oftentimes is a harbinger of uh, death uh, that people... Untreated uh, you know will wind up incurring cancer, and uh, oftentimes when people let it go too long, they really don't wind up being able to to survive uh, that a lot of these cancers can be treated uh, they can be intervened in an early uh, early point and uh, in so doing we can help people have a much longer life uh, than they otherwise uh, would have so I'm delighted that uh, that Sibley. Slash Johns Hopkins has come to the East End in a much more extensive way uh, than they had before. I've been working with uh, Sibley and Johns Hopkins now for over a year. Um, they had an outstanding event um, about 10 days ago at the um, RISE Information Center, uh, RISE Innovation Center, which is on the grounds of St. Elizabeth's, and I was so delighted that as mayor we were able to build, you know, we, we, we took over the uh, the chapel that existed at St. Elizabeths completely modernized it and turned it into a place now where there's all kinds of meetings uh, that are being held, and uh, we just had the uh, the uh, Ward Infinity uh, program, uh, which is run by Sibley and, and Hopkins, um, conduct an event that laid out for people uh, what they've been able to accomplish in terms of gathering information about healthcare needs and uh, it is going to make an enormous contribution to the kinds of health services that we want to make sure we have available uh, to people. Um, we, um, we know that if we can have a panoply of services available to people, it will make a huge difference uh, in their lives, in their life expectancy, and the treatment and diagnostic and preventive services that we'll, they will have available to them.
1: Absolutely, and it's just financially it's smart very smart very smart and you know from a human perspective
0: it is very smart and from a financial perspective as you've indicated it is very smart also uh health care is one of the most expensive endeavors that we have uh you know in in the nation uh we know that for a fact all you have to do is you know start to look at the cost of care um we have um you know, I oftentimes ask people what, what do they think the largest budget is in the District of Columbia, and uh, oftentimes they will say public safety, or they will say education. Well, if you put public safety, uh, which includes, of course, the fire and EMS and, uh, you know, police department, together with education, when you add those two together, they don't de- equal how much we spend on health care uh, in the District of Columbia, which is a, an awesomely large sum of money.
1: Yeah, and it seems like as a nation we're always super excited about oh, we've invented a pill to treat Mm -hmm. this disease, and we've invented a crazy laser surgery to treat this disease. And there's a, and and, you know, and I don't want to begrudge the science, and it's fascinating, but if we just didn't have folks get sick in the first place and we caught the thing early and treated it or had people eat healthier or be in shape to start with. It's not sexy, it's not glamorous, but if they didn't get sick and we had people have their annual physical and stay in shape and caught things early, it would save us a ton of money.
0: There's no question about it. And you put your finger on uh, something that's hugely important, Josh, and that is um, eating. You know, there's the old adage, you know, we are what we eat. Well, I guess we are. One of the things we've invested in, and we just just did it in this budget also, uh, working with uh, DC Greens. Um, Is continuing to invest in uh, Produce Plus, uh, in the uh, Martha's Table uh, services, which uh, three or four of these organizations working now working to make sure that there's the opportunity for people to access produce in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. Uh, Lauren Beal, who is the uh, director of, um, of DC Greens, is somebody who we worked very closely with. I'm very excited that we were able to put into three or four different organizations $100,000 or more uh, into their services. They are making vouchers available to people to get healthy produce, uh, fruit, vegetables, and other um, opportunities to intervene uh, through some of the organizations that they access. We even have Giant uh, working with us now uh, closely uh, to be able to make these vouchers available and also to be able to get people to purchase produce uh, from their local grocery store. And frankly, that's another issue that's, that's huge, too. We have so few grocery stores, uh, full-service grocery stores, in Wards 7 and 8. We have two grocery stores in Ward 7, uh, full-service, and we have one uh, in Ward 8. You know, this, this is two wards put together with 150,000 people, as I mentioned already, um, where you have some areas of the District of Columbia, some wards that may have as many as nine or ten grocery stores individually in that one ward. And we're working hard to try to bring more grocery stores to, um, you know, uh, Ward 7 and Ward 8. Um, I have bills that we've got, a couple of which we've gotten passed uh, by, the, uh, by the council that would lower the property taxes uh, for grocery stores that will come and locate in either Ward 7 or Ward 8. We also have expanded one uh, bill that would increase from 10 years to 30 years, uh, the tax abatements that would be available. And then we had another bill which should have been fully funded in this last budget. Uh, The money was available, uh, a bill that I passed when I was chair uh, of the council, Uh, and that is a bill that would um, allow, once the city reaches 60 days of operating cash on hand, Uh, any additional money, uh, any additional surpluses, would then be divided into two areas. Half of it would go to affordable housing. The other half would go to what's called Pago, which is a simple term saying that you pay as you go. And it would would have allowed us to be able to um, fund grocery stores, to build grocery stores, the city would do it, and make them available at a nominal cost to full-service grocers who are willing to come uh, and locate in those areas of the city. I think the benefits are fairly obvious uh, on their face, and that is being able to make available these you know food opportunities for people, um, bringing grocers who otherwise might not come uh, to the uh, east side of the city uh, to areas where people desperately need these services. they want these services and um, would benefit tremendously from the opportunity
1: now there's you know I guess people have two different um Two different arguments, and I'm not making either of these arguments. Some folks say about food that folks in in Ward seven and eight eat poorly because they don't have access to good supermarkets. I mean, if you had good supermarkets, they would eat differently. Um, then, um, and then other other folks say that that you need that there needs to be more um, sort of education around how to use good good produce. There are folks that related back to take coming back to healthcare, saying that, um, and I know like the the, um, the fems DC fems has made this argument that there needs to be an education around healthcare that they are trying to have more um, nurses on nine one one. They're they're making the argument that a lot of people that call nine one one don't need to call nine one one. A lot of people that want to be transported by ambulance don't need to be transported by ambulance. And that they can talk to a nurse on the phone and get help, or um, that uh, they, uh, a lot of times, they can send an ambulance and someone, the, the the private ambulance service, can come talk to them and don't need to transport them. What are what are your thoughts on this argument that some of this is education?
0: Well, I think a huge chunk of it is education, and. Um some of that can occur in uh, what we've been able to do very successfully in the city. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we now have the most robust early childhood education program uh, in America. Um, we are the only city that has a, you know, a place for every uh, three- and four-year-old in a pre-kindergarten program. So imbuing um, the, educa- the early education services with opportunities to educate these kids um, we now have a, um, a birth to three uh, program also that is designed to serve the very youngest uh, of our children and, of course, interact with their parents uh, along the way. So I don't think there is any substitute uh, for any, um, you know, any, any way of replacing, and we shouldn't, uh, the educational opportunities that are available. Uh, certainly the fact that, um, you know, FEMS has a nurse uh, available for people to talk to but so often, when they get to that point, they're already sick. You know, they already have a problem. What we really need to do is to continue to invest invest in ways to keep people from getting sick uh, in the first place, and that is around the uh, education that you referred to. It is around the opportunities to access good produce, fruit, and the like, and get people to know to like those things and feel good about eating them. Um, I was not one of those persons who was great at uh, eating some of those uh, very healthy things, and I've disciplined myself now in a way to be able to do differently. You know, I love greens, uh, you know, collards and mustard greens and kale and the like. And uh, I've even gotten pretty good at uh, eating fruit fruit now. Uh, And we need to do that with our very youngest children. When these kids are uh, very young, when they're three and four years old, they are a sponge in terms of soaking up uh, information that's available to them and then being able to put it in practice and we need to do more of that, uh, making sure that we use these early education opportunities as a way of influencing these children around what
1: they eat. Because, again, not to be trite, but uh, we are what we eat. Yeah, and then that's a, that's a question, is that if folks grow up in an atmosphere where they don't have access to health resources, you need to learn how to get good health care when you do have access to those resources. That's right. If you do have access to a dentist and insurance that covers dentistry, that you get your teeth cleaned twice a year. That's right. Um, If you have access to immunizations, that you need to get the immunizations, that you Mm -hmm. need to get a checkup. But if you grew up without access to those, you don't know that you need to do that. It's not part of your... It's not what you're accustomed to. Your normal routine, that's right. Right. So, so it's a, I guess it's sort
0: of a two-track uh, system. You know, we have a bill before us now uh, in the uh, health committee that would allow uh, children, minor children, to be authorized to make decisions. Now the question is, at what age? You know, we're still debating that, of course. Would they be able to make decisions? Uh, would they be able to, uh, you know, engage in informed consent uh, around vaccines uh, being given to them? And we know that there are vaccines that, um, you know, make a huge difference in the future of children. You know, we've seen the, uh, the, the reintroduction, the re-advent, if you will, of, of uh, measles, uh, which is now on the rise again uh, in our society. We just had a hearing uh, recently on uh, our uh, vaccine bill uh, before the committee, and the question is, do we want to give some children uh, the opportunity to make these decisions themselves without having to rely on their parents and if they are given that opportunity um, with what with what what would be required? what would be the definition of informed consent um, that they can engage in, and then we can feel comfortable that they really know what kind of decision uh, they're making. That will probably be debated uh, into the fall, and I suspect we will probably uh, move forward with a bill that would allow some of our young people the chance to say, yes, I want to be vaccinated. I want to be able to uh, wind up being able to insulate myself uh, against getting a particular disease that could you know induce death or could make you very sick or induce uh, you know disability uh, conditions that you know would be there for life. Uh, and I think I think we will wind up with a bill, um, and I think it will serve children um, well as all, as well. Uh, we, um, we we heard, heard some testimony among people who, you know, talked about uh, you know the rubella vaccines and that sort of thing and what they may have uh, created, but I don't think we have a lot of evidence at all that says that you know children being bas- vaccinated uh, in, in any significant numbers is going to result in them being, um, you know, disabled or being sick uh, as a result of it. I think the danger, of course, the greater danger is them being sick as a result of not being vaccinated uh, in the first place. So that's a bill that I hope everybody will stay tuned uh, to, uh, especially as we move into the fall.
1: Definitely. Um, now, I promise we'd come back to the hospital. Not to drag you kicking and screaming, because I know you hate to talk <laughs> about the hospital. Uh, but how how are we going to square this circle? I mean, because we have... You know, Howard University wants to be, uh, you know, wants to be part of the hospital. Mm-hmm. We have uh, George Washington University that is at odds with the, the um, umbrella organization for GW Hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have the union that is... You know, uh, part of the part of the uh, conflict. Um, uh, you know, I think we all want to see a happy ending here, but it just seems like there's so many moving pieces. Um, how do we ha- how does how do we ride into the sunset on this one?
0: Well, hopefully, everybody will recognize how critical the need is uh, first and foremost.
1: Um, I, and I, mean, I think we're there. I mean, everyone yeah. recognizes the need, mm-hmm. but you know, how do, how do we get through the black box to come out the other end? Well, there's supposed to be an agreement.
0: The, uh, the, the Bowser administration is negotiating the agreement, um, and they were the ones that selected George Washington University to be the operator. Um, you know, Howard, as you indicated, has had um, an you know, overwhelming interest in them being able to participate in terms of having a place for their their medical students uh, to be able to uh, have places to engage engage in residency and internships and that sort of thing. And they wanted to be a part of the hospital uh, in doing that. Um, we are we are working uh, with um, the city administrator uh, and the deputy mayor for health and human services, um, Wayne Turnage, who used to work for me. He was I appointed him actually as the director of health care finance. And they are working now, and we're working close, as closely with them as we can, to be able to produce the document that will come before the council that will set out the conditions uh, under which... This hospital will be operated. There was a competitive process uh, in which uh, George Washington University was selected to operate the hospital. Um, there are actually a lot of people who live in Ward Seven and Ward Eight who go to George Washington uh, University Hospital down in Foggy Bottom. So, with George Washington presumably being the operator, this will bring a whole set of services to um, you know the Ward the, uh, Ward Eight, Ward Eight, and Ward Seven. That otherwise wouldn't be there in fact what a lot of people don't know is uh, George Washington has agreed to invest over a period of 10 years 75 million dollars of its own money uh, to, to expand uh, health care services in Ward 7 and Ward 8 but at the end of the day it will come down to the kinds of questions you raise and that is um, who will get to operate these services and which services will they operate um, Howard's uh, hospital has, with, with the closure of Providence, which really has been a, it's created a real deficit uh, in healthcare services in the city. Um, there are more patients now who've been going to Howard. Um, the hospital center has been overwhelmed uh, with numbers, um, and um, the the um, other hospitals in the area uh, have been overwhelmed uh, as well. That's another reason why we desperately need to have this hospital open, um, which will be located physically in Ward 8, but we serve Ward 7 um, and Ward 8. Um, We need to have that happen. We need to have it as quickly as we possibly can. And we need to sort through, which I think we will with this uh, definitive agreement, as it's being called, who will be responsible for doing what. Um, Again, we're working with um, the city administrator, Rashad Young, and... um, Deputy Mayor for Health and Human Services, uh, Wayne Turnage, to try to sort through uh, these issues. And uh, hopefully, at the end of the day, there will be a place for everybody. Um, Howard now has um, entered into an agreement with Unity Care, uh, Unity, uh, to be able to provide some of the primary care services in the uh, new S.U.M. Center, which is a, uh, a S.U.M. Center located on Benning Road. So... There is a need, there's a place for most of the principal players, if not all of the principal players on the healthcare care scene uh, in the District of Columbia. You know, frankly, to have Sibley and Johns Hopkins now coming further uh, towards 7 and 8 is a real plus uh, for people because of the services that they're bringing and the expertise uh, that they're bringing uh, with it. So I think we've got a great opportunity. Uh, I think we have, uh, you know, a number of people who want to work uh, in this arena. Um, The mayor recently appointed a uh, health commission um, that is just starting to work uh, now, being chaired by uh, Sister uh, Carol Kean, who used to be the uh, CEO of uh, Providence Hospital, and then David Catania, uh, who did an excellent job of chairing health care services when he was a council member. And I'm on it as an ex-officio member. There are a lot of other people who are on it as well. And I'm hopeful at the end of this, this, this period, which will be about five or six months, we will produce a plan that says exactly how services will continue to unroll, unfold
1: um, in the District of Columbia, especially in wards 7 and 8. Gotcha. One very quick question because we're out of time. Um, What is the timing you'd expect to see that document out of the administration regarding the hospital? We don't have a
0: specific timetable, but hopefully as soon as possible. Um, One of the things that I'm happy about too, Josh, is that through the the last budget, we were able to move forward, advance by one year of the construction period. So now the hospital is to be completed by the end of uh, 2022. Uh, That sends a message, I think, to everybody that we're very serious about this. We know what the needs are, and we want to get these services uh, in place and operational as soon as possible. Um, There was a point when it was, you know, 2023... And uh, then we were able to get it moved up by another year so that uh, 2022 is now the date. And um, we can get this done. We have the expertise. We have the technology. We have the know-how to be able to get this hospital built in a way that will bring services to people in ways that they haven't had before.
1: Time is of the essence. We'll Absolutely. Be on the look Time out for that, that document. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Time is of the essence. We're going to have one quick closeout question in mm-hmm. 60 seconds. I mm-hmm. um, want you to say, of these things, which are the things in order that you can't live without? Thinking about uh, cell phones, mm-hmm. cell phones. Um, Talking into your phone, texting on your phone, emailing, and social media. Which of those things? What's the one you you most need and the one you least need? Putting those in order.
0: Well, I I, I text a lot, so okay. I would put text at the uh, top of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, I would put social media uh, next on the list, and as far as talking into a cell phone, I guess I would start to put that towards the bottom
1: of the list uh, at this stage. Yeah, it's funny. It's yeah. technic- it's called a phone. <laughs> it's, but that's right. It seems like that feature has fallen towards the bottom. It sure has. Gotcha. Absolutely. Okay, well, I apologize for having to cut us short, but we always we could do an hour, you and yeah. me. We, we, always, we always run out of time. But thank you again for being generous with your time coming in. I'm um, grateful you're here. Um, thanks for being our guest. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Tune in again next time. We're at DC Radio at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. Thank you.